Well, welcome in this morning. Uh, if you got your Bibles, uh, we're going to open back up to Romans chapter 8. I hope you guys had a fantastic Thanksgiving. I'm glad you're here uh, this morning. Um, got to start off with this. I issued you a challenge. I issued myself a challenge uh, over the last week. Let me, let me just ask you this. How many of you up to this point have at least half of Romans 8 memorized? Anybody have half of Romans? Okay, we'll just start smaller. How many of you have Romans 8, 1 through 4? The very, just the very first section. Anybody have that pretty much down? Okay, awesome. Hey, that's, that's excellent. Well, I, I told you last week, I'm going to come in this morning, and I'm going to have everything memorized. Stupidly, I didn't check the calendar and realized this was Thanksgiving week, and uh, it's pretty busy. So, uh, I, I have zero excuse except to ask you, please forgive me. I, I'm not fully ready for that yet. Uh, so, I am, I am about three-quarters of the way there, uh, but next week we're going to get there. I am, I am, I'm not promising, but I am saying this is my hope that we will get through uh, this section of Romans 8. But man, there's just so much in this scripture. So much in this chapter as Paul is trying to lay out really the, the gospel message. He's trying to remind this fractured church, this is the focus. This is what the gospel message is. This is what Jesus has done. And this is why it matters for you both now and forever. Right? And this is really the section that we're going to get into this morning. So what I want to do We've worked through, uh, after today, we'll have worked through the first 25 verses uh, of Romans 8. And so every week we've read this together to try to uh, continue to get this into our hearts and minds, to see the entirety of what Paul has said up to this point. And so uh, let's read the first 25 verses together, uh, and that will encompass where we're going to go this morning as well. Paul starts, he says, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mindset on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mindset on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. 
For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Last week, we highlighted this section in verses 18 through 22. And in this section, Paul brings to light the reality that, that life is, is painful. The truth that suffering is, is simply a part of this life. For the believer and the unbeliever alike, suffering is, is simply par for the course. And it was a reminder in this section that Paul says some, something's not right. In fact, you feel it. I feel it. In fact, all of creation feels that something is not the way that it was meant to be. And so what Paul is trying to get us to, to realize is that through this sense that, that something is broken, something is fractured, it points us to the reality to come where life is no longer fractured. There is no more mourning. There is no more pain. There is no more sickness. There is no more sin. And Paul is trying to, to get your minds fixated on the fact that there is more to come. Right? It's not just this life of, of sin, of, of pain, of trouble that you feel now. But there's something greater to come. But, but this pain should cause you to focus not on the circumstances now, but on the life to come. In verse 18, Paul uses this language that brings about this imagery of a mathematical calculation. It, it brings about this imagery of, of kind of weighing life on a scale. And Paul says in verse 18, I, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the future glory that will be revealed in us. And he's saying, all of life's troubles, if I put them on this scale, and I put the glory to come on this scale because of Christ, there's no comparison. And for the believer, what this truth alone should do is, is stir up in us some forward thinking, some hope, some excitement, some expectation of the life to come. <clears throat> Because as I hear this truth that Paul lays out, what inevitably stirs up in my spirit is, yes, come Lord Jesus. Whatever happens in this life, I'm promised the assurance of a life of glory to come. So come what may. This is the idea that, that Paul's writing is supposed to stir up in the believer. A forward thinking that says, 
whatever happens in this life, however painful, however frustrating, and it's not to minimize the pain, but it's to create in us this eager expectation of, yes, I'm, I'm longing for that. I'm longing for home. I'm longing for the life I was created for. So come what, come what may or come Lord Jesus. We know there is a certainty to come. The purpose, again, is to, for us as believers to see there's more. So as we walk through this daily life and the pain and the frustration and the trouble, it's a reminder this, this isn't it. This isn't all that your life holds for you. There's a life of glory to come because of Christ. Paul kind of introed last week's section, verses 18 through 22, in, in verse 17. It's why we read it in its context, in its in, entirety, because it just builds off of one another. But Paul says this, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Just in this passage alone, there are three promises that Paul has laid out because of Christ. The first one is this, if we are in Christ, if we are true believers in him, then we are heirs of unfathomable riches of God. This is what awaits the believer. So this is the, the promise that hangs over everything. There, there's more, more than you can imagine, more than your, your mind can fathom to come because of what Christ has done. Because of what he's done, he's brought you into this. He's brought you into this inheritance. The second promise is this, is if we are in Christ, then Paul says we will share first in his sufferings. It is arrogant of us, it is naive of us to assume that a life following Christ is a life of comfort and ease nonstop. No, what Paul says first is, no, if we're in Christ, we're going to share in his sufferings. But if I could add a, a, a kind of disclaimer to that, it's only for a little while. The third promise is this, then we will share in his glory. If I could add a disclaimer to that, it's forever. So we will share in his sufferings for a moment and we will share in his glory forever. This is the good news promised to us. So there's this expectation or an understanding that to share in God's glory and his inheritance later, we will share in his sufferings now. Well, what is Paul doing here? Again, he's, he's trying to get us to realize, hey, there's, there's more to come. It's as if Paul is trying to, to shake us awake and say, are you buying into this? Or are you simply fixated on the circumstances of the here and now? Don't you realize there's more? Don't you realize there is life to come? However much life you feel like you've had in this life, it is, it is a drop in the bucket compared to what awaits. He's helping us to make sense of this life, but also help us to keep in perspective the life to come. One of my favorite movies of all time is The Princess Bride. It, it, on the title alone, you think, what kind of rom-com is this guy watching? No, it is one of the funniest movies ever. It is a manly movie, so before you judge me, go watch it. It is one of the best movies that have ever been put out. And, and there's a moment in The Princess Bride. 
when the, the princess is, is not sure who is trying to, to save her, not sure who she's talking to. She's actually talking to the love of her life, Wesley, this farmhand. And, and he's talking about her loss, thinking she's talking about him. She doesn't realize this is the guy she's actually talking to. And there's a moment where uh, Princess Buttercup, again, it is a manly movie, I promise. Don't go on the name alone, okay? She says, you mock my pain. And Wesley says, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says different is selling something. The reality is this. Life is pain. Life is hard. I talk to many of you on a weekly basis, and, and we know life is difficult. I go through the prayer list that, that never seems to get smaller. It only seems to get bigger. And when you look at that, it's a reminder. Life is pain. Life is trouble. Life is frustration. Now, not totally, not entirely. I, I want to make sure we get this in proper perspective, not to think Ben is just this downer. Now, I want us to know that no, there are, there are joys in life. There are great joys in this life that actually give us a glimpse, a, a small glimpse, a shimmer of light that is the goodness and the graciousness of God. Because, listen, as we've laid out time and time again, as, as men and women who are inherently sinful, who have nothing good naturally in us, anything good, anything joyous that we've received in this life is, is simply a picture of the grace of God. We deserve nothing good. But this life is not all filled with pain. There is glimpses of goodness that, that just give us a picture of the greatness to come. But what I don't want you to do, what I don't want you to hear is, is buying into this lie that, that so many are buying into. That Christ has purchased ease and comfort, health, wealth, and prosperity now. No, what we've seen time and time again is, is oh, life is hard. Following Christ means we are in Christ, and, and because we're in Christ, we're also with him in his sufferings. So I don't want you to be naive about what life holds. I don't want to try to sell you something that, that is really not the reality of what's going to happen. When Janelle and I first got married, we, we lived in an apartment in Effingham. And now we, as I'm 33 years old now, and we, I've, I've kind of lived both of these times in society. I remember as a kid, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. Uh, my grandparents had neighbors who never knocked. And all their neighbors just came in. One lady in particular, her name was Barb. When I heard the screen door open and just somebody walking in, I immediately knew it was Barb because Barb never knocked, never announced her presence. Barb just walked in the house like she owned the place. But there was never any suspicion on my grandparents. They just knew, yeah, this is, this is, this is how things go, right? This is just what neighbors do. So I lived that life, but I also lived the time here and now when the second we hear the doorbell, we hear a knock at the door, we're like, what in the world is anyone doing at my house? What do they want from me? What are they trying to sell, right? We're always suspicious anytime somebody comes to our door and we run and hide as opposed to going uh, to answer the door. So I've lived both of these uh, times in society. Uh, we were newly married and we're living in this apartment in Effingham and we get a knock at the door. 
And so I go and answer it, and it's this younger gentleman, and he tells me he's selling magazines. Now, one thing you need to know about me in my younger years was I was pretty naive, and I wasn't very confrontational. I've developed that skill over the course of the last 10, 12 years, uh, but I, I wasn't confrontational. I was pretty naive, and this guy tells me he's selling magazine subscriptions. He, he says that he's got this special deal that I can pick five magazines and I can get a subscription for the next five years for the low, low price of $49.95. Who wouldn't want to take that deal, right? ESPN, the magazine, Sports Illustrated, Field and Stream, come, like, come on, $49.95? My wife says, hey, come here real quick. She says, if you buy anything from him, you're an absolute idiot. I said, he's just trying to make money. He, he tells me this story. He says, I'm trying to raise money for college. Well, I want to help a guy out. And, and so I said, Janelle, no, he's not a scammer. He's just trying to raise money for college. He's, he's going door to door. She's like, if you buy anything, I don't want any part of it. Like, this is your baby. And so I go and talk to the guy, and I nicely sign up for five magazines, and, and I wait, and I hand, him the, I hand him the money, and he goes on his way, and he tells me, hey, Two to three weeks for processing, and you'll get your first magazine. Sir, if you're watching this uh, online this morning, I am still waiting. Uh, so I don't want to say I got taken for a ride. Something just got misplaced. And so I'm, I'm still waiting. Um, but he was clearly trying to sell me something, right? Now I, now I know this dude was a charlatan, he's a scammer, and now I, I'm very hypersensitive to this stuff. So if you come to my house and try to sell me something, mm, I'm pretty sensitive to it, and now you know why. Okay, I'm still waiting on Sports Illustrated from 2010. So, um, I don't even know where I was going with that. But, <laughs> so, what we're not trying to do is sell this cheap lie that following Jesus is, is a life free of pain, free of trouble. It's all ease. It's everything is great. Because the reality is, as you know, you know life isn't that way. But so many people buy into this lie. And in fact, we want to we reject the popular notion that being a Christian equates to being happy, healthy, and wealthy all the time. No, because you're smart enough. You know. That's not what life has held for you all the time. Life has brought pain. Life has brought struggle. Life has brought frustration. And so you, you know that what Paul is saying is true. Life is hard. But the reality is that this life is fractured by sin. And what we're seeing in the, in the joys of life is, is simply a glimpse of what's to come. And so Paul is not trying to, to hide something from you. He's not trying to sell you something. In fact, what you need to understand is, is the one that we follow was called in Isaiah the suffering servant. And, and so something doesn't register when we, when we feel like, hey, I'm, I'm following the man known as the suffering servant, and yet I feel like there shouldn't be suffering in my life. Well, no, think about who we're following. Listen to how Jesus is described. This is in Isaiah, a thousand years before his coming. This is what is written about him. It says, He was despised and rejected by mankind, 
a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shear is silent so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death. And was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Why do we lay this out? Well, it's because who are we to think that as followers of the suffering servant, we ourselves should not live a life that is marked by some suffering? This is who we follow the suffering servant. And as Paul says, for those who are in him, what you can expect is for a moment there will be trouble in this life. But it's only a moment. Because the story in Isaiah 52 ends, 52, 3 through 12 ends with this. But he's triumphant. He, he suffers for a moment, but, but he is victorious. This is the story of those who follow Christ. They suffer for a moment. They're broken for a moment, but they will be victorious because of Jesus. There's trouble in the here and now, but there is life coming where it is no more because of him. Church, this ought to fix your mind, not on the here and now, but the life to come. This is what awaits those who put their trust in him. This is what awaits those who are in Christ. All right, let's actually get to the text this morning. Romans 8, 23. We'll go quick. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Paul has laid out this truth that, that while we're here, that while we're living this life, there is this sense of, of longing for something else, something greater. All of us feel it. Whether you recognize it or not, what our souls are longing for is the life to come. And so Paul is, has laid out this reality. He, he said there's a couple things that you need to be aware of. The first should bring you great joy, comfort, and peace. 
Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, that we are told as we submit our life to Christ, as we are obedient to him through the waters of baptism, we're raised to life with him, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Paul lays out what that is for us, is a deposit guaranteeing our future hope of full redemption. This is great news. For the believer indwelled with the Holy Spirit, this is the deposit guaranteeing our salvation. If you remember a couple weeks ago, what does the Spirit do? Well, the Spirit, it says, desires the things of God. The Spirit walks with us and helps us be obedient to Christ. It helps us to walk in this process called sanctification. This process of being made more and more like Jesus. It's, it kind of works itself out in this way. That when you look back on your life 10 years ago, when you were following Christ, you, you can see I'm, I'm, I'm not who I was then. Right? God has continually made me something different. It doesn't mean we're without sin. It doesn't mean we're without struggle or without pain. But what it means is that the Holy Spirit is working on us, chipping away, refining us, making us more like Christ until when? Well, Paul lays out this. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Uh, famous theologian John Stott said this, we are living in a place of being half saved. Now, before you get up in arms, what he is not saying is that your salvation is only halfway complete. What he's not saying is that Jesus has only saved you halfway. No, you are saved fully, completely, forever because of Christ and what he did on the cross and in the empty tomb. In fact, we go back to verse 1. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is not a call to doubt your salvation, but it's to say there is still more to come for the believer. You are saved now, but you're waiting for something. And you're waiting for the redemption of your physical body. You've been saved from your sin, but you're still living this life that, that contains suffering, contains pain. So you're waiting eagerly for the life to come, for the body to be redeemed, and there is no more sin, there is no more death, there is no more mourning. The Holy Spirit is simply a deposit guaranteeing what's to come. Uh, Janelle and I are in the process of, of buying some land, small amount of land, and one of the first things that they ask for is, is what? They ask for a deposit. They ask for earnest money to guarantee that you're actually going to purchase what you say you want to purchase. And so this is, this is the same thing that Paul is laying out here. He's saying the Holy Spirit is the deposit that is guaranteeing that the promise of God will come to be, that you will be redeemed, you will be restored, and you go back to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a reminder. This is the promise that God has made. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? As you, as you approach this word of hope in Romans 8, here's what you need to understand. Paul is not speaking about a hope that is, is really not grounded in reality, a hope that is not grounded in certainty. 
Let me give you an example. From the months of November to March, I hope the Illini basketball team wins. I don't have any knowledge. I don't don't know how things are going to go. And and for the past 10 years, it normally doesn't happen. Now we're good, so it's enjoyable. But uh, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know the end result. I'm simply hoping, in in a way that's more wishful thinking, This is not the hope that Paul is laying out. Paul is laying out a hope that is grounded in certainty. Why could we be certain? Well, because the reality that Paul is is kind of laying out is fueled by God keeping his promises. So Paul says we, we hope, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? Paul is laying out this idea of hope as an assurance of what's going to happen. Because he's confident in who God is. He's confident in the promises that God has made. And he's saying, listen, God has has made promises before and he's kept them. This is who he is. God keeps the promises that he's made. And so I'm hoping for the life to come with certainty. Because God keeps the promises that he's made and what he's promised for the believer. Is there a life eternal to come? Life abundant to come, free of pain. And so I'm looking forward with hope because I have an assurance that it's coming. The writer of Hebrews lays out this. Many of you know this verse in chapter 11, verse 1. He says, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is where it gets hard. Because we can say all of these things. We can lay out all of this scripture. But the reality is, is you're going to leave this place today and you're going to go back into a life that oftentimes has trouble. You may be able to forget about them here for a moment, but but you're going to go out and and live life. And you're going to realize the suffering, the pain, the trouble, it's still there. What the writer of Hebrews has laid out is this is that on the certainty that God keeps his promises, because that is who he is, then you can trust that there is the hope of a life to come. And so we walk by faith. We we are obedient to him. We live this life proclaiming the gospel, sharing the gospel, because we're certain God is going to do what he said he's going to do. He is going to redeem us. He is going to restore humanity. He is going to restore creation. This is to come. But what the writer of Hebrews has laid out is this, is that the end of this faith journey, though we walk without sight now, our journey will end in sight. The journey of faith ends in sight. We will see. We will stand before God. We will stand before the Son. We will see that he was true, that he kept his promise. This is where faith ends. Why does all of this matter? Well, because you have to keep this in perspective. If this is not the overarching theme of your life, then it's really easy to get bogged down with the here and now. It's really easy to buy into the lie that that this is it. We might as well seek happiness and health and, and wealth because this is all the world has for us. This is all that life holds for us. Now, what Paul is trying to say is keep this in perspective. In the face of suffering, in the face of frustration, of trial, keep this, keep this certain hope 
this hope that will come to be, the life that will come, keep that in the forefront of your mind and walk day by day towards it. That's why Paul ends the way he does in verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. We are living in this place of yes, but not yet. Yes, Christ has come to save you. Yes, if you've trusted in him, you are saved completely. But there is more. And we have the assurance that Christ will restore, will redeem. This is to come. And so for Red Brush Christian Church, for believers in our midst, we walk and we wait with patience but assurance. As we wrap things up this morning, I, I want to I wanna issue a challenge to you. That if we live with this assurance of a life to come in perspective, a, a life that is only possible because of belief in Christ, because of what he's done on the cross and in the empty tomb, if we believe that this is true, then are our lives being ordained around this truth? Men, are you, are you leading your families <clears throat> with this assurance hanging over everything that you do? Are you leading your families in prayer? Are you leading your families in, in working through the word and not just content to bring them here? Although it's great, God has ordained you to be the leader of your family. Are you punting on that? Or are you going to press in because of the assurance that, that I trust in Jesus? I, I trust that what he says will happen, and I'm going to orient my life around that. I'm going to build my family around that truth. Women, are, are, are you going to help your husband in, in leading your families? Are you going to care for your children, your grandchildren, raise them up knowing the Lord? Young adults, as, as you plan out what life is going to hold for you, which those of us who are, are past that now laugh because what are plans? But as you are planning, do your plans revolve around how, how are we going to build this life around Christ? How are we going to build <clears throat> this marriage around glorifying him together? How are we going to plan for when we have kids? How are we going to lead our families when that day comes? Uh, students, are you, going to, are you going to buck the current trend that says, no, it's, it's all about you. It's all about living your truth. It's all about making yourself happy. It's all about elevating you. Or are you going to push that aside and say, no. No, I'm going to build my life. In a way that is countercultural, I'm going to build my way, build my life in such a way that that goes against the current trends of the world. But but I know who I'm hoping in. I know who I'm trusting. What would this place look like if we took this seriously? What would what would Redbrush Christian Church? What would what would Louisville? What would Flora, what would Clay County look like if at the forefront of our minds 
was the assurance that Christ will do what he said he's going to do. He will come. He will redeem. He will restore. And he is saving now. How would this change your family? How would this change our school system? How would this change your workplace? The goal of the believer is not to make the most of this life in in regards to the ways of the world. The goal for you, if you profess to be a believer in Christ, is to live a life that when it ends, you are spent doing the things to advance the gospel. This is the obligation that Paul speaks of. We have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh. We have an obligation to walk by the Spirit in obedience to Christ and go and share the good news that saves. There is one hope in this life, and it's Christ. So the question is, is will you live on mission? Will you trust that the hope that we yet cannot see will come to be? Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. Father, may your spirit stir something in our hearts that draws us in closer to you, that that begins to chip away at our hearts that, that Father, gives us a, a boldness to live in such a way that is absolutely countercultural. To have gospel conversations at home. To lead our families in prayer, to, to lead our families in working through your word and, and then living that out to lead our families in such a way that that we love people. Father, to be the kind of of man, woman, young adult, child that that people recognize there's there's something different. Father, when when they ask, Lord, may we be ready to give an answer that it's not us, but it's you living in us. Father, we thank you for the blessed hope that we have. That there is a life to come. The fullness of life. The life that we were created for. The life that you intended for us before sin fractured this world. Lord, may your spirit cause us to to groan with expectation. to, To long for home. And live a life in full view of what's to come. Father, as we leave this place this morning, may the gospel message be on our lips. Father, may all this be used by us to bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, may this be so of us. It's in your holy and precious name that we pray these things.